Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 216, The Breath of the Earth. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be a host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. The International Space Station allows us a great vantage point to look down at our home planet. A few episodes ago, we talked about the eco-stress experiment with Dr. Carrie Cos Nicholson, which is looking at the temperature of the Earth in plants, urban areas, and more. She also brought up how data from other experiments feeds into our overall understanding of Earth science, and mentioned one that is measuring carbon dioxide. Enter the Orbiting Carbon Observatory 3, or OCO3, which is doing just that on a daily basis. It launched in 2019 and continues gathering data on atmospheric carbon from the OCO2 experiment that began in July 2014 in a polar orbit and is still there collecting data today. OCO3 provides data from the space station's orbit, which is 52 degrees north and 52 degrees south latitudes. On this episode, we get the scoop on what this is and why it's important to help the planet from project scientist Dr. Anne-Marie Eldering at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. So let's explore an experiment on the space station that's watching the Earth breathe. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light search for the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Anne-Marie, thanks so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Thank you. I'm very excited to share a little bit about what we're doing with OCO3. Wonderful. First, I want to know a little bit more about you because OCO3, um, you know, you have an interesting uh, path to, to start working on this particular project. And you have a background in environmental engineering, uh, environmental engineering science. I hope I'm saying it right, uh, which sounds very interesting. So please, let's uh, tell me about yourself. Uh, what, what led you to... Uh, start working on uh, OCO3 like you are today? Yeah, so I came out to Los Angeles back in 1988, and it was a great time if you like smoggy, dirty, bad air. So that was what I studied in my PhD was what, what is it that makes up the air pollution and reduces visibility in LA? And then we tried to understand how you could engineer a solution to it. So that was kind of my training and background and thinking mm -hmm. about the world we live in, the world around us, the environmental problems we have, and then how we might try to address them. And that's kind of fed into what I did once I got up to JPL. I went from working in a very local LA problem to starting to think about the global picture and global air pollution and JPL was getting new instruments ready to go into space and study air pollution from space. And that was a great opportunity for me back in uh, 1999. Hmm. So the, the first project I joined was called the Tropospheric Emission Spectrometer. The name doesn't really give away much, but the point was to try to look through Earth's atmosphere and learn about the air pollution, but not just the total amount, but we actually were trying to differentiate air pollution near the surface from air pollution higher up because it's the stuff near the solution that impacts the humans. So you want it to try to see that separately. And, and uh, it was a brand new measurement technique that went up on an EOS mission. And we had a lot of success and, well, challenges and success with that project. But I learned about doing science from space and working in a NASA team. And then an opportunity arrived um, back in 2010 to join 
Orbiting Carbon Observatory 2, uh, and that, that built nicely on what I had done with TESS, so that's the opportunity I had uh, to get involved with the carbon crews, and uh, everything unfolded <laughs> from there. The carbon crews, that's a pretty cool name. Um, what is OCO2? So OCO2, Orbiting Carbon Observatory 2, um, is a follow-on to OCO. The original uh, instrument was a spectrometer built to measure carbon dioxide, but it didn't launch successfully back in uh, 2009. And so OCO2 was a rebuild of that instrument. Uh, so a, a spectrometer that they rebuilt, and then they set it up on its own satellite. So OCO2 is actually still out there today, flying over your head and measuring carbon dioxide in Earth's atmosphere uh, from a satellite. Very interesting. And um, before we go into OCO3, which is going to be our primary discussion here, um, <clears throat> I want to understand more about exactly what it's studying. Um, because to, to lead into what exactly Orbin, or the OCO3 is doing, I think we need to better understand just carbon dioxide, what's happening in the Earth. Why is this a field that we actually need to study? Um, so so let, let's start there. What is, what, is, uh, what is it that OCO3 is studying? What's happening on Earth? Yeah, I mean, those are great, great questions. And uh, OCO2 and OCO3 are, you know, we kind of sister instruments using the same technique, measuring the same gases and, and carbon dioxide. So a little bit about carbon dioxide. It's this molecule that's in our atmosphere, um, and it has a particular effect called, we call it the greenhouse gas effect, or it can trap heat and energy. And um, you know what a greenhouse is. Maybe you don't know what a greenhouse is. So a greenhouse is where you use glass. You put up a glass building, and sunlight can get in, but heat, the longer wavelengths of light, don't get out very well. So even if the air outside the greenhouse is cold, the air inside could be quite warm because the glass is, is trapping, uh, trapping energy. And so carbon dioxide molecules do a similar thing. Energy can come into Earth through sunshine, but when it's trying to get back out as heat and longer, wave radi longer ra wavelength radiation, carbon dioxide holds on to some of that. So it's a little blanket for Earth. And that's kind of a good thing. If that carbon dioxide wasn't there acting as a blanket, we would be way colder. We would not be comfortable here. But if you think about the blanketing effect, you also don't want too much of the blanket on you. And the more and more carbon dioxide that gets into our Earth's atmosphere, the more and more it's trapping heat. So it's one of the critical gases to the ch climate change and the warming of Earth. Um, and in particular, what we want to understand is more about how our human emissions, how much do they stay in Earth's atmosphere? How much do they get taken out by plants that are growing? How much do they absorb in the ocean? Um, because just for a few little numbers, if we think about how much carbon dioxide humans put into the atmosphere by burning coal and oil and gas, about half of that stays in the atmosphere typically, and about half of that has been taken out by the oceans and the plants each year. That's over the last decades, as we have measurements, that's what we've seen. But every year is a little bit different. There's these years where the plants and the oceans seem to take out 80% of the carbon dioxide we put in. And then there's other years where they only take out 20%. So it's really variable. Hmm. And we want to know how how is this going to unfold? What's going to happen in 2050 and 2070? 
can the ocean just take up more and more and more and more? Is there going to be some limit? What what about the plants? As the plants get warm, or they're, it's getting drier, is that going to limit how much carbon dioxide they can take out? So OCO2 and OCO3 want to measure carbon dioxide around the whole globe, over oceans, over plants areas, over urban areas, measure it everywhere and try to put together a more detailed picture of this uptake and uh, release of carbon dioxide from plants and oceans and uh, the atmospheric state. So that was kind of a long story, but that's why we care about carbon dioxide. Yeah, no, but that is, is super interesting. I think this is what what you just described is, you know, wh where is this carbon dioxide coming from? What is it? What is producing it? Where is it being absorbed? Is this the idea of when I was reading about um, OCO3 and what it's measuring, there's these things called carbon dioxide sources and sinks. Is that essentially what you're what you're talking about? Yes, it is. That is exactly what I was talking about, the sources okay. and the sinks of carbon dioxide. And also we use the phrase sometimes about how the earth breathes, because hmm. when plants get going in the spring, especially you think if you just imagine a picture of the earth in your mind and you think the northern hemisphere, North America, Europe, Asia, we have a lot of land in the northern hemisphere, much more so than down in the southern hemisphere. And when spring arrives in the northern hemisphere and those plants start growing, you can really see carbon dioxide amounts go down because the plants take it all out of the atmosphere. Or not all, they take a bunch out of the atmosphere. And then when those plants die off in the fall and the winter, that's released back up into the atmosphere. So you see these swings and sways each year because of plant activity, ups and downs in carbon dioxide concentration. So that kind of looks like the earth breathing each spring spring and fall. But on top of that, we have an overall increase from year to year because we keep putting more carbon dioxide in than the plants and ocean can take out. Uh -huh. And that sources and sinks is this idea of, is, you know, what are the trees and the plants of North America doing? What are they doing in Europe? What are they doing in Asia? It's not every tree and plant is the same. So we want to think about sources and sinks or uptake and removal in different regions of the world to understand uh, what what exactly they're doing and how they might change in the future. Okay, wonderful. Now, in terms of sources, you you mentioned some uh, some human made or I think the term is I'm I'm probably gonna butcher it, but anthropogenic uh, emissions. Um, so you got some some human made ones, and then there might be some natural sources of carbon dioxide. What are those? Yeah, so the, the human sources are the dominant sources, but we still have to think about, we can think about land and ocean as a source, particularly mm. when you say, for example, in November, when the plants are, um, leaves are falling off and starting to decay, there's uh, regions of the world where there's more carbon dioxide going out into the atmosphere than was being taken up. So that acts as a net source. Uh, so... The natural system can be a source of carbon dioxide in certain periods. And, and other phenomena like fires, wildfires are uh, more and more in the news these days. And when you're thinking about carbon dioxide, they, in the net, they're putting carbon dioxide out of the plants that are burning and up into the atmosphere. So they're a mm. net source to the atmosphere. Interesting. I didn't realize that wildfires are, are can be a natural source. Interesting. Um, okay, and then you said the sinks, and I think you already mentioned them, but the ones that I heard were plants, um, which are which can vary. 
Uh, and then the other one was oceans. How, how, does, how do they work as absorbing the carbon dioxide? Yeah, oceans are really interesting um, because, you, you know, I guess for me, I'm not an oceanographer. I hadn't been thinking about these things, but you actually have very different um, wave action. There's different temperatures. There's parts of the ocean where the water tends to be rising up from below and coming towards the surface and other parts of the ocean where water is kind of sinking on down. And uh, so depending on the, the temperatures of the water and the atmosphere around it, carbon dioxide can get out of the ocean and up into the atmosphere, just as it can also be taken uh, and absorbed into the oceans. And then in regions where there's downwelling, that gets taken down into the deep ocean. So they are uh, exchanging carbon dioxide. They're, they don't vary wildly, right? Much like the plants vary a lot from year to year. The ocean's much more of a kind of a steady interaction to the atmosphere. Interesting. Now, in terms of uh, what I'm trying to do is build a foundational knowledge to, to catapult us into discussing um, OCO3. Some of the things that studying are these sources and sinks, all of these different areas. We're, we're talking global here, right? When we're talking about plants and oceans and, and these uh, sources of, of emissions from all these, uh, uh, you know, the, they're burning coal and, and oil and everything. This is, that's a lot of data. I think the other, some of the other stuff it's, oh, is absorbing is um, radiation from plants and something called solar-induced fluorescence. Now, what is that? Yeah, let me tell you about the solar-induced fluorescence, and then we can talk more about the, the sampling and stuff. So the, okay. the solar-induced fluorescence um, is some uh, something we hadn't planned the mission around, but scientists started understanding that they, this was something they could learn about from space around about 2009-2010 in that time frame. A couple different scientists in different labs were coming to this insight around the same time. And what what they realized was that when photosynthesis happens in plants and trees, there's a little bit of like the sunlight comes in, the plant does photosynthesis, it generates some heat while it's doing that, and it also releases some light uh, at very particular wavelengths. And when you make a measurement like ours from space and you're measuring light, you try to model and understand that light in great detail. And those scientists realized there was a little bit of light in the spectrum that they couldn't make sense of unless they said, wow, when plants are doing photosynthesis, they send off this energy and I'm picking it up in my detector. So we see a little bit of light that gets emitted when plants do photosynthesis. And it's giving us some insight into how much plant activity is happening. So that's what we call solar induced fluorescence is a kind of the technical name of the light that comes out of plants when they do photosynthesis. So we we map that out and can take a picture of of what's happening and you see these really um, interesting seasonal cycles of as the plants get rolling, the solar induced fluorescence gets larger and larger, the tropics are almost always uh, showing a big signal because those plants always have plenty of light and water and warmth, so they're pretty active all the time, whereas something like Canada will have a brief period of the summer where you get a lot of fluorescence from plant activity, and then other times of the year it's much uh, lower signal levels. But it's great because if we're thinking about this question of carbon dioxide uptake, plant activities, interactions, if you know about the photosynthesis through this SIF signal, it helps you 
uh, put together more of that puzzle about the plants and their uptake of carbon dioxide. There's the connection. Okay, perfect. Now, um, that's perfect, uh, Anne-Marie. That's, that's uh, I think, a nice foundation for, for what's happening. Let's go to the uh, Orbin, Orbiting Carbon Observatory 3. Now, what is this facility that's on board the International Space Station? Yeah, so the Orbiting Carbon Observatory 3 on the space station uh, was a great opportunity that presented itself because, as I mentioned, we built OCO2 as a rebuild of a failed launch. When that work was proposed, uh, we decided we should make two at once. It's much cheaper to build two things at once than it is to build one and then build another. Hmm. Just in case something happened and the next time we launched it, we wanted to have this spare instrument available. So when OCO2 was safely up in space and started working, uh, we realized the opportunity to repurpose that spare and make it into this OCO3 uh, payload. And hmm. the International Space Station, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have that tracking tool and, and see that it's going overhead. And, mm -hmm. and uh, people love to see the astronauts being brought up and all the human activity. But there's also this really exciting science happening on the outside of the space station. And uh, specifically, the... There's this module, the Japanese Exposed Module Experimental Facility, or GEMEF. And if you build a payload with a very specific um, interface, you can get it uh, launched and, and attached, and it can start doing science. So I think there's about eight or nine spots up there where people have instruments uh, being used to do science from the space station. And so that's OCO3 went up into space and got installed on that GEMEF facility back in uh, Mar May 2019. Okay. And uh, so, so that's, it's, it's nice perspective, right? Um, what's, what's nice about, so, so it seems like you you have a lot of instruments that are similar on the OCO2, which is its own satellite. I think that one's in a polar orbit, right? And this one has the International Space Station orbit. Uh, what, what's nice about having these two perspectives? Yeah, it's it's um, very typical, as you mentioned, that a lot of science instruments in space are launched into these polar orbiting uh, orbits where they go overhead at the same time every day. And so that gives them some uh, consistency in the time of day, which helps with some of the data interpretation. But on the other hand, uh, you're missing out on anything that's happening that changes over time of day. So being on the International Space Station gives us this really neat opportunity to make measurements uh, at variable times of day. Sometimes the data we collect is at 8 in the morning, sometimes it's noon, sometimes it's 4 in the afternoon. And when you're thinking about plants and uh, activities that vary through the day, it's great to have that new kind of information. And, and the folks who are working particularly with the plant data have all started to uh, make assessments and show us they actually do see differences in measurements that happen in the morning versus the afternoon and starting to learn that, for example, if plants are doing photosynthesis, but then they get really hot and uh, start to get overheated in the afternoon, that photosynthesis sort of shuts down due to the overheating and they can start to see some signals of that in the data we're collecting. But I got a little bit sidebarred. So yeah, being on the space station, number one, it lets you uh, see things at different times of day. Mm -hmm. Number two, it's a, ISS is huge. It is like the size of a football field. 
So when you're building an instrument to go onto the space station, if you're a little bit heavy, it doesn't really matter. And that made it really easy for us to build our OCO3 payload because we weren't too constrained by weight. And so we could go ahead and just do good engineering and get the thing built up. And then the third thing about our OCO3 payload is we have this amazing pointing system that we have had to add on um, to be able to look at our validation sites and look at the glint spot on the ocean and so on. OCO2 does all its pointing by moving the whole satellite. We couldn't get the ISS operators to agree to that for us, so we had to put our pointing system on OCO3, and that's turned out to just be a really valuable new mechanism to have on our instrument. Hmm. Well, what's a, what's a validation site? So, so if you're measuring carbon dioxide and you want to talk to the science world, it's really important that you can connect the data you collect to the recognized standards for carbon dioxide. Everybody thinking about carbon dioxide ties back to this one uh, measurement and measurement technique. So we uh, want to do the same thing. And the way we do this is kind of a, there's three or four steps to it. We have some sites on the ground where we've installed instruments that look up at the sun and make a measurement a lot like the OCO3 measurement. So measure the light spectrum and then interpret that to find out the amount of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. But once in a while, an airplane or a balloon is launched over those ground sites and it measures carbon dioxide by drawing air into a collection cylinder, just like they do where the references are made at the NOAA sites. And so those ground sites are measured over by an aircraft and we measure over the ground sites so we can tie everything together. So we've got a whole network of these uh, validation sites known as the Total, Total Carbon Column Observing Network or TCON. Makes the data reliable when you end up looking at it because you know you have all these checks and balances. Yeah, and it helps the scientists use our remote sensing data along with the ground-based in-situ measurements so we start to um, be able to really exploit all the data together. Very cool. All right, now uh, OCO3, it's in space, right? So it's, it's orbiting pretty high up. Now, what are some of the instruments on board that help you to measure the things that you want to measure? Yeah, so so I'll tell you a little bit about the what's the guts of OCO3. We've just been talking mm -hmm. in generality, but but how do you figure out how much carbon dioxide is there is there when you're flying around on the ISS? And the way we do that is we look at light. So we have so sunlight gets uh, shines down on Earth, reflects off Earth, and we collect some in our instrument. And we've designed uh, this with three particular bands of light to be measured. One of those is at a wavelength that's kind of like the wavelength of light your eye sees or visible light. And that one's important because if there's a cloud in the way, it's really obvious at those wavelengths of light. So we can tell that we saw a cloud and that data is not going to be good. Hmm. And then the other two bands that we measure in are where carbon dioxide molecules absorb light. So every molecule in the world, because they're made up of atoms that are interacting there's the physics result in there being a very specific and known way that each molecule interacts with light so we design to collect specifically where carbon dioxide molecules are interacting with the light 
one of those where there's a lot of light absorption by the carbon dioxide and one where there's kind of a moderate amount. And so by looking at that light and seeing how it changes, we can find out how much the carbon dioxide was interacting with the light. And we, we do that with what's known as a spectrometer. So if you're familiar with the prism where you can make a little rainbow by spreading out the light wavelengths. Yeah. It's a similar idea over a very narrow uh, band pass of light, band pass of light, and very finely resolved. So we, we collect very detailed measurement of light in these three little bands, and that's basically what we need to use to extract insight into how much carbon dioxide there is. So is it, I guess it's some of these spectrometers that allowed you to have the happy accident of, of measuring solar-induced fluorescence in the plants as well. You're, you're measuring light wavelengths, it sounds like, and you're like, hey, look at that. You're, that's exactly it, right. And the one I mentioned that we, we worried about the clouds, and so we use that visible wavelength. If you right. go uh, to the very shortest wavelengths of light, that's where these uh, light emissions from the plants show up. So it's actually... In, in, in OCO2, we thought those wavelengths were just so far at the edge of the detector, we weren't going to do anything with them. And that's where the plant light showed up. Yeah. Very cool. Now, it sounds those are the key instruments, right? You got the spectrometers on, on OCO3. I think you said there was, um, there was a pointing system on board. What other cool technologies are on OCO3? Uh, let's see. We've got a I will cool to me. I don't know if you'll find these cool, but you know, one of the other things we have to do <laughs> is um, I, these light measurements are, in, are the heart of the data. So you've got to make sure you really understand how much light there is. So we actually have to have a little calibration system built in. And we, um, what we do is there's little lamps that we've brought up with us and we take our instrument and point into the calibration system and look at that lamp light periodically. Like every every few orbits we do that and some lamps get turned on once a week and some get turned on every couple of hours. But we have to get those light measurements as a way to uh, keep the instrument calibration uh, running or uh, well understood throughout the whole uh, time period. So yeah, the pointing system, the spectrometers with these really sensitive high-speed detectors at the back end, calibration system, and then being on the um, space station, we don't have to have a fancy uh, way to down, beam down the data, but we actually just send it over an Ethernet connection, and then the space station takes care of everything with getting our data down to the ground. I see. So that's pretty nice, right? That's uh, that's one less thing you had to worry about. Awesome. And you thought I wouldn't find that interesting. That's that's spectacular. So that's, <laughs> that's cool, the calibration technology. Now, um, in terms of how they work, right, in terms of the operation of them, you got the space station flying over the Earth. What is it, 16 times a day or something like that? How, what, when are you collecting? What is the, what's the sampling technique that you're using um, to, to gather the data? How, how is, how are all of the instruments working? Yeah. So the, um, so as I mentioned, we need sunlight to do this measurement. So our, hmm. our ops team will only uh, send up instructions for data collection to happen during those daylight hours. But the, the kind of concept of the measurement is that we have. Um, 
we have these detectors and we use them so that we have eight footprint we call a footprint is like one little measurement of data that's occurring over about two by three kilometers on the ground and and with our detector we can get eight of those footprints at once where once is a third of a second so we kind of think of it with like your camera you open up the shutter for a third of a second get light on your detector close the shutter and read out the data so we do that every third of a second we're getting eight footprints on the ground so for about 14 kilometer from side to side for those eight footprints get that data reset your shutter get another one so there's a continual swipe of data 14 kilometers wide being collected um, anytime the sun is shining on the earth's surface and we do have two two modes that we primarily use. One of those is just looking straight down or called, we call it the nadir mode, which is what we do over land. And over water, the water surface is not that bright at the wavelengths of light I'm talking about. So we have to think about where's the sun shining onto the water. And if you've ever hung out at the a side of a lake during kind of a sunrise or sunset, you know that where the sun reflects off the water can be super bright even if areas away from that are dark. So we we don't look right at that glint spot, but we, we look pretty close to it where we get bright reflections off of the water surface. So that's another reason that pointing system was so important. If you've got to mm -hmm. go find that shinier spot on the water, you need to point over to it with the pointing system. Yeah, you got to get just that right angle because it seems like the angle was very important to your data collection. Um, Absolutely. In, yeah, yeah. In, in terms of the scope right uh, space station covers a lot of the earth are you gathering data from as much of the earth as possible are you focusing on select areas and just gathering data on these select areas over time what's the what's the scope of what you're covering yeah that's so it's a couple numbers that are good to know about the space station it's basically the the orbit that it flies in you can't see you can see everything from about London to Patagonia or 52 degrees northern latitudes to 52 degrees southern latitude. So with OCO3, we can't look up at the Arctic, don't see any of Antarctica, but we do see all those latitudes 52 to 52. Um, and we, we work pretty closely with OCO2. And since OCO2 is healthy and happy and getting global measurements on a regular daily basis, what we've decided to do with OCO3 is we take that nadir and glint data for a lot of the day, but we weave in a whole bunch of other special measurements. So let me take a little moment and I'll explain this other thing we do yeah. called a SAM or snapshot area map. So that cool pointing system lets us, um, for example, when we want to look at one of those validation sites, what we do is we we can point the system pointing system a little bit ahead of where we're flying and sweep over the validation site and then repoint and sweep it again and you basically repoint as you're flying by and you can overlap about five or six uh, stretches of data you'll measure about 50 60 kilometers and then repoint and sweep that again and so on so we can use the pointing system to get that overlapped validation data and then our engineers also designed a mode where you use that same pointing capability, but your goal is to map out an area that's about 50 kilometers by 50 kilometers. 
and just get one footprint on each location. So you, you think about that two by three kilometer footprint. If you collect a swath of data and then get one next to it and one next to that, you can basically map out an area. And so we schedule, some days we don't schedule any because uh, the interesting places aren't gonna be visible and other days we'll get 30 or 35 of these maps collected. Um, and we've selected we have a whole database of places we want to try to look at. Those include cities, volcanoes, forests where there's special studies going on. If somebody's out in the, what we call out in the field, for example, there's been scientists flying airplanes over Los Angeles and California to study carbon dioxide, we'll coordinate with them and collect maps of data with where they are. Um, so we spend a, um, a fraction of our time with OCO3 doing those special snapshot area maps over these different uh, focus areas. Again, cities, volcanoes, forests, um, validation sites. So that's kind of a, something that OCO2 wasn't able to do and a really interesting new data set we're getting with OCO3. Fantastic. Uh, very, very cool technology. Um, it seems like it, because you were working on OCO2, uh, and you came to JPL just before the, uh, I think, 2000, right? You said 1999. So um, I wonder, you mentioned that OCO3 was a happy result of building a spare for OCO2 and realizing, hey, you know, maybe we can actually turn this into something that's that can, you know, collect additional data and, and where, where better of a place than the International Space Station. I wonder if you if you were there for the genesis of that idea and working towards the process of, of putting it on the International Space Station. Were you a part of that? Yeah, I was. I, I totally had the opportunity to be there from the, the beginning. And awesome. uh, remember working with, you know, we had a lot of great engineers at JPL, and I can remember the discussions of, you know, wh where are the possible places we could use this spare instrument? What are the upsides? What are the downsides? What are we going to do? And coming to the conclusion that the space station was the the best option we could see and then doing the work to, to make that into a reality. It was, it's super fun. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so when you realized that you were going to go to the space station, there are a couple things you mentioned that you needed to add because it was going to go into the space station, right? You got this, this pointing capability and stuff like that. And I wonder what it took uh, to say, all right, let's, let's get it on the space station, all the work that needed to, to get it tested and verified and, and ready to go up on a SpaceX to, to uh, Dragon to, to go to the space station. Wow, we could do a whole nother hour just on that. But a <laughs> I mean, a couple of things that that stand in my uh, stand out in my mind from that work um one of those was um kind of under like you know understanding what the environment of the space station was going to be like and there's the, some of the things you think about when you're in space is your your temperature and how you're going to control your temperature because you're in the sun for part of the orbit and then you're out of the sun and you can get super cold and warm very quickly with that change but the space station and the GEMEF actually provide a cooling fluid that we could run through our instrument system. So the thermal engineers had to do a lot of work to figure out, could we stay at a good stable temperature? And temperature stability turns out to be really, really important for our instruments and our spectrometers because if the, the um, 
instrument warms up a little bit, the alignment can change a little bit, and then that's really not good for the spectrometer that we want to use. So temperature planning out and, and figuring out if we're going to be able to keep our temperature control was one thing I remember a lot of discussions about. Um, and then also um, vibration. So when you get launched up into space, that's like the hardest thing on your instrument is that launch process, right? Once you're attached to the space station, you're flying around up there, it's a pretty calm place. But you think about the process of being strapped to a rocket and launched off of Earth is a lot of vibration. And the original OCO2 instrument was launched on what's called an Atlas rocket that's been used from, for NASA for a very long time. And there was um uh, well understood what the vibrations were going to be this move to going with spacex was a big benefit from a cost perspective but it's not as gentle of a ride so um if we were had visuals rather than just an oral i would show you this picture of this insane looking um additional engineering stuff we had to do to dampen the vibrations during the launch. We have this whole little set of um, rails on the bottom of our instrument that were there just as part of a vibration isolation system so we didn't shake and rock and roll too hard when we went up on a SpaceX rocket. Um, and building that pointing system, you know, it sounds cool when it's in operation, but you could imagine just to, to engineer something that can move as many times as we're going to make it move. And that can also, um, th you got to have cables inside of this pointing system, right? It's, it's got to be powered. It's got to know where it is. So it's, it's got cables that are wound inside. And so designing it so that it could all be moving and move smoothly and function for a long time was a, it's a good engineering challenge for the team. So those are a few things I remember long discussions of. Uh, and of course, anytime you build something for space, you do a lot of testing and um, there's usually a couple of surprises that happen during testing and and uh, it's expensive to to get things in this cold, um, cold vacuum environment that you need to simulate space. So when we test our instruments, we run that whole operation around the clock, 24 hours a day. So it's a big push up for the team to uh, do that work and to be efficient in doing it and respond to any uh, surprises quickly uh, while they're doing these round the clock testing efforts. Fantastic. Um, uh, Anne-Marie, it sounded like there was a lot of a lot of work that went into making this uh, instrument a possibility, getting it ready to go up to the International Space Station. And, uh, you know, there was there was work specifically to get it ready for a launch on the Falcon 9. I wonder if you had an opportunity to go out to Florida and watch it head to space and what that was like. Uh, so this, yeah, working with SpaceX and then the Falcon 9 was, we were really excited to do that and uh, and to be part of part of uh, one of their payloads going up. So we, um, just trying to, to remember, I can remember some of the pictures. Of, a, a, a part of the engineering team went down with the payload and um, was at the facility to see it loaded up into the Dragon. So um, you, as I, uh, so a Dragon, if you take a look at any of the pictures of the Dragon capsule, there's a couple of big, 
kind of I-beam rails, and then your payload basically has feet that grab onto those rails. So our team went down there with the payload in a truck. I can remember the afternoon when we had the payload put up into this uh, truck that was going to drive to Florida. All the team came out to see it happen. We we're so excited to be at that stage. Some of the engineers went on down to Florida and saw it integrated up into the Dragon capsule. And then uh, a lot of us went down to try to be there for the launch. And I'm, I'm sure you and your listeners in the space business know that launch is always a uh, a, a window, right? You think, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to go on Tuesday, but then anything could happen. And so unfortunately, we had weather delays and other interruptions, and I wasn't able to see the launch in person. Oh, no. Um, we only, I think we had about four or five folks who did it, but the good thing was we, uh, our, our crew and the team were so enthusiastic, we basically went down to a local bar one night to see the launch and there was a delay so we went back the next night and uh, still had a good crew of people show up and watched everything on tv and nasa um the nasa show and then as you know when you work with spacex they've just got cameras everywhere so it's was super cool to see the the launch itself but then also see the camera images as the separation of the Dragon capsule from the launch vehicle. And you can even see our payload in the back of the Dragon up in space. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot that we got to see, even though we weren't physically there in Florida for the, the event. Still probably a good feeling though, especially that last view where you, you can actually see your payload in space for the very first time. That had to be pretty exciting. Like, wow, there, there it is. It's in space. Yeah, no, I was, and I was getting all jazzed when the rocket went on up and then the engineers around me were like, be quiet, be quiet. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. And so they went and celebrate till you saw the separation and you could right. actually see the dragon capsule floating on out. And then yeah. there was even more fun. Like, so you know, you get launched, but then it takes some time to get synced up to the ISS. And I can also remember where I was when we went through the the process where the Dragon capsule arrives to the space station, a robot arm attaches and holds onto the capsule. So that's exciting. And then I think it was a day later that the robot arm took our payload and pulled it out of the back of the capsule, handed it off to a second robot arm, and then that brought it around and actually attached us in the Gem EF slot. And the engineers got the ISS folks to use one of the cameras on a robot arm and watch as we uh, started testing that our pointing system was moving properly. So there was a lot that happened up there that we were able to, to see happening with all the camera and all the data feed down from the space station. So that that was actually all like just amazing to, to see that happen. Wonderful. And then and then from there you got, I, I'm assuming you kick in the gear and it's like, okay, now it's time to start the data collection. So we've talked about the facility itself on board, some of the instruments, what it's doing and, and, and what it's capturing. Now let's go to the ground. When 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 the instrument is doing all this stuff around the world, um, what is happening to send that data to you? Where where is your team? Uh, give us a perspective on what it's like to to be a part of the OCO3 team. Yeah, so it's it's really exciting to work with OCO3 and and uh, be involved with everything from operations to data processing to the science data products. So to to go from where we 
need to be, we sit on the ground and say, hey, what are we going to measure this week? What's available? What's happening on the ISS? Our mission operations team are a group of experts who have a set of tools that uh, let us plan out a week in advance. Each week we make a plan, review it for the science, and then they actually talk directly up to our payload. They go through the mission operations center and send a set of instructions on up to the payload and uh, those get executed and collect our data. So we uh, get the data collection and then uh, every six hours through the ISS system, data gets sent down to the ground and our data operations team gets a pile of ones and zeros, uh, which is what the raw data looks like. And they use their tools and their data processing to turn that into light levels and then eventually into the science data products we're interested in. And their challenge is to keep their data flowing through the pipes so that they can keep up with the continual flow of data collection that we have. And then finally, we have a group of scientists who work on everything, the calibration of the instrument, the validation of that data, and then the science and the use of the data that we've collected. Uh, so we've got three groups of people who do their magic and uh, every week and every day and make it all happen and create the data products. <laughs> That's right, and and you're you've been doing that continuously, right? You got a lot, you got a lot of work been done since it launched in 2019. You have a lot of data, and you're already starting to put some of that out. One of the things that I found interesting was uh, some data that was published on concentrations of carbon dioxide in the Los Angeles area. So, so what was that all about? Yeah, I mean, Los Angeles is is great. We've got millions of people living there, emitting carbon dioxide like crazy, clear skies mountains trapping the air, so it's a great place to study. And what this uh, first piece of work showed was that if you can make observations like ours from space and see the whole LA region, you definitely pick up extra carbon dioxide that's coming uh, from the emissions. But it can look very different, and that's basically driven by the winds primarily. So we showed that if you account for the emissions and you accounted for the winds, you could, for the most part, explain what OCO3 has been observing in the basin. So that was a good check on the technique and also helps us uh, know that to try to apply those techniques to other cities, we've got to have a pretty good estimate of emissions as well as winds to be able to interpret our data. Very good. And you're, and you're going to continue to collect the data and, um, and there's there's a lot more to do. I wonder... You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of good information about how, you, the way you described it is how the earth is breathing, right? And so I wonder what, wonder what we can expect down the road in terms of publishing some of the data so that maybe, maybe we have a better understanding of our planet and better understanding of how to help our planet. I think that's one of the best things that could probably come from this investigation. And I wonder what some of the plans are for, for the OCO3 team. Yeah, so the OCO3 team... Um is in a unique position because when you get on the ISS and the GEM-EF, you don't get to stay forever. A lot of people <laughs> want to do experiments like our experiment. And so we actually had a commitment for three years. And it looks like in about the three years and four months or so, we actually have to say goodbye. And, and uh, we'll be collecting data as long as we can, but there is another instrument being built. And when they're ready to come up, we get taken off um, of this, the space station. And the other surprising thing for many people is that we're not going to be able to bring that instrument home and uh, look at it and take it apart because the Dragon capsule can carry 
think the number is about 6,000 pounds up to the space station, but it cannot bring that much home. So we get put in the capsule, but we'll burn up in the atmosphere uh, at the very end of our mission and uh, turn into a bunch of dust. So there's a real <laughs> end to this thing. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's good. But then, you know, we have to look forward to when the mission is over, you get a chance to sit down. You don't have to worry about all these teams with the data collection, the operations, right? You get to sit down, look at the data and, and find out maybe some new and interesting things about our planet. Yeah. Yeah, no, and we've we're already getting some insights and we can see just like you say when we have more time to dig in where we can go with this. And just to give you a couple of teasers, uh so we we did that work in LA and now we're looking at a lot of other cities. And when you look at our data as well as other gases that are measured by other instruments, for example, nitrogen dioxide, uh we're really starting to be able to put together a detailed picture of emissions from city from the data set. And um, also, as I mentioned, the folks looking at plants are using the different time of day data and using some data from our neighbors, like EcoStress is on the ISS. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a Japanese payload and some others uh, looking at plant ty type of plants. There's JEDI, which is looking at how much plant material there is. So scientists are using all those different types of ways of measuring plants together to get more insights into their activity uh, what limits their carbon dioxide removal, uh, how they respond to stress and drought and things like that. So a lot of interesting science coming down the road. And Marie, I think that's the perfect place to end right there is a teaser for, you know, get folks excited for, for what's to come uh, as you're nearing, uh, I guess, the the end of the uh, OCO3 mission um, with, a, with just a, a little bit of time left. But Emery, this is a wonderful discussion. I learned so much uh, from from the last time we talked. We had a brief conversation as part of the SpaceX Crew 2 broadcast when you came over to SpaceX headquarters and we got to chat just briefly. This was just fascinating to dive so much deeper. So, so I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, I really appreciate the interest and uh, I'm glad we got to share some of the information about the science and the cool thing we're doing with NASA and OCO3. Hey, thanks for sticking around. What a fascinating conversation with uh, Dr. Anne-Marie Eldering today about the OCO3. I definitely learned a lot, and I hope you did too. Check out nasa.gov ISS for the latest on all the experiments that are happening on board. Uh, Anne-Marie also mentioned a website called Spot the Station. She said there was uh, an app that will literally text you whenever the space station is flying overhead. So you can go outside and you can see it. It'll tell you where it's flying uh, in your local area. That's spotthestation.nasa.gov. We're one of many NASA podcasts across the entire agency. You can check us all out at nasa.gov slash podcast, and you can find our full collection of episodes there. We're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show or maybe ask a question. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston We Have a Podcast. This episode was recorded on August 26, 2021. Thanks to Alex Perriman, Pat Ryan, Nora Moran, Belinda Polito, Rachel Berry, and Aaron Anthony. 
And of course, thanks again to Dr. Anne-Marie Eldering for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.